1: Good evening, welcome to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with FL Montreal's Josh Miller. Good evening, Josh. Hello, Dan. And this evening on the program, we'll be talking about gifts with Christina from WAF, W-A-F-F, World Gifts. And later in the program, uh, something that you, um, I guess, uh, precedes the gifts, a failure sometimes.
2: And uh, we'll be talking about... Um, the the F Up Nights. Yeah, the Foul Up Nights. It's uh, Foul Up Nights. F Up Nights is turning one. We just turned one year old uh, in Montreal, although it's been around for a long time. So we'll chat about that later. Tomorrow night is our uh, volume six, our sixth edition. We turn one, Ecole des Entrepreneurs. Uh, we'll, we'll chat about that a little later.
1: Yep. So it's all about entrepreneurs telling their stories of how they messed up and how they rebounded, more importantly, from those failures. So that's coming up later in the program. Uh, But first, as usual, some entrepreneurial news and notes. And uh, this first story is something I've been wanting to talk to you about for a while and just get an explanation. This term blockchain, we're hearing this a lot lately, and, uh, and now we're seeing... Blockchain tomatoes. I, I can you just give us a, a quick primer. What is blockchain, and what are blockchain tomatoes? Blockchain
2: for tomatoes. So blockchain, and and it's it's maybe not the easiest thing for for people to grasp, but uh, you know, Bitcoin, the cryptocurrencies, uh, where I guess a lot of this discussion started. Blockchain is basically the system behind recording all the transactions that are happening. Call it online. Hmm so it is it is kind of like a a master audit trail of everything and all these transactions and all these online events that are occurring that is the oversimplified term of blockchain and and I know that there's people out there listening to me saying no it's not that it's a little more complicated yes I get that it's more complicated but basically on the on the on the surface and the basic understanding it is a uh, think of it as an audit trail behind the scenes of online transactions. So currency management system? Is that fair? But it, yes, but it's not necessarily just for currency. It okay. can be for anything electronic, which is where this article that what I was reading that, that came out was blockchain for tomatoes, was because in fruits and vegetables, there's actually been some remarkable advancements in technology where they are monitoring... When when something should be harvested, at what temperature, at what perfect ripeness, uh, and, and all these factors, certain chemical components, certain, and not just from the vine or the the farm, but also in transportation. So in transportation, you know, they're testing the humidity and the and 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 the temperature and the ripeness and whatever else they can they can measure. But all these electronic measures can be can be followed and and almost that, that trail, that online trail, so that when somebody's ordering something, if somebody wants to buy that tomato, just like if somebody wants to buy that cryptocurrency, you have an online record, a real-time online record of what's happening with that, in this case, tomato. Hmm. So where is it located? At what temperature? Is it ripe? How much time is left? So it's, it's, it's actually quite something. It's going to be the evolution. I know we're, we're years and years away from it, but the technology is already out there to monitor so much activity that this blockchain component behind it that's registering everything that you can follow in an instant uh, is is quite something. Again, I, I know, for all the listeners that, that know blockchain better, I know I'm oversimplifying <laughs> it. So uh, stop stop yelling at your radio, and, and it's okay. But the thing with tomatoes, like cryptocurrency, the bitcoins of the world, the Ethereum's of the world, they that's still brand new for everybody. There's only one way to really track it, and that's through blockchain. With tomatoes or vegetables, you still have other ways to get to that information, other ways to get that knowledge. And to that product so it's to, that's why it's not quite there yet is blockchain also sort of a tech
1: solution that'll essentially eliminate theft uh, in in the workplace I mean can you if you're tracking
2: things down to the individual tomato y- uh, yes although although y- the answer is yes uh, then there's the the thought that well when people are holding your information, for a ransom, they like they've been, they've stolen your data, they've encrypted it, and they want to get paid. They get paid in Bitcoin. Now, why do they choose to get paid in Bitcoin? Because it's tough to to see where it's actually heading. In other words, it's it's every every blockchain, every every um, transaction, you need a key to open it, and every key is individualized and personalized. But is it trackable? Can you track it to that person? You can only track to that key. Um, anyhow, again, a little oversimplification. <laughs> Uh, one day we're going to get that blockchain expert that's going to demystify it for everybody, um, and uh, and that should be super interesting. So if you're running a small or medium-sized
1: business and you notice that there are uh, maybe one too many tomatoes missing, um, the question, and this is from the Financial Post, is when is the right time for... To sort of skip a review and go straight to an audit. So when does the case become so serious that an entrepreneur has to go? No, now I need a professional I need to do an audit.
2: Well, that's it. And, and there, there, this was an article that came out, and I, I guess it's right up our alley. You know, as as FL and, and a CPA firm, and you know, it's more on financial statements because financial statements uh, can be costly. You know, to get auditors in there, it's it's it, it can be a it can be a big burden on the on the bottom line. But sometimes you need, this article was really like, yeah, but sometimes you need to kind of go from that notice to read a review engagement to an audit, that that low-level check of a financial statement up to a, a much higher-level check that's an audit. And, you know, there are certain circumstances where it'll require it. Maybe you need some money, so you need some financing. Uh, and, you, and your banker or your financier is going to need it, so you're going to do it. Maybe you have, maybe you want to grow your grow your business and add investors, and investors will rely on an audited financial statement much more than they will on any other level, lower level financial statement. So that's that's pretty big. Maybe you have some employees that aren't that you don't fully trust, and an audit is one way to to. I guess check your figures to make sure that that things are, are happening in the in the right way and, and being spent properly. Uh, maybe you're maybe you're about to sell your business and you know somebody if you want to go sell your business, chances are it's, it's going to undergo due diligence. An audited statement will certainly look a lot better. So there, there's a number of different reasons. I can go on. There's there's a few others. Uh, there's a number of different reasons to do it. But what the article doesn't talk about is well, when you have an audit, and what if you want to go, what if you want to downgrade? because not everybody needs an audit. Not everybody needs to spend those tens of thousands of dollars on an audit. Well, then maybe you should be questioning and said, okay, I know I've been doing an audit for a long time, but if my business is better, the banks don't need it because the banks are starting to understand and, and and accept the downgraded from an audit to review engagement, ask the question. Maybe you don't need it. Or if you think you need an audit, maybe it's just on specific areas. Maybe you just want to check your inventory. You want to check your receivables. It doesn't have to be a, a full-blown audit.
1: Now, uh, along this, the same lines on this financial post series of, you know, what do you do when? Um, what do you do when you have too many tomatoes at your uh, tomato shop and you need, uh, you can't necessarily afford
2: a bigger place, uh, but you need to sort of
1: get the tomatoes out of there. Uh, in comes the
2: logistics industry. And logistics is huge. You know, when, when people talk, how am I going to scale my business? You know, there is no question that people are a part of it but if you're moving goods and we're we're not talking services we're talking goods and you want to scale your business and you want to offer the right price for your product and it's got to move from one location to another transportation logistics is absolutely huge and it can make or break your gross profit in an absolute instant so you want to have you want to have it done right and if you're not good at it there are other companies there are these 3PL these these pick and pack and logistics uh, uh, companies out there and and around the world where if you're if you're in Montreal and you have a lot of a lot of customers in Mexico well maybe your product should be sitting in Mexico in a warehouse and you can pick and pack and ship from there and drastically reduce some of those transport and logistics cost and and truly help your bottom line so that becomes again not for every business not necessarily for some service business and whatever but for the ones that are transporting goods across the planet Transportation logistics using third parties that do it right that understand can be absolutely huge, especially today when everybody wants everything yesterday.
1: And finally, in our ongoing series, uh, how millennials are changing business. Uh, not nine to fivers, five to niners. Tell me about that phenomenon.
2: Five to niners. This was an interesting article I read in the in the um, in the Financial Post, and. 5 it p.m. Was, to 9
1: p.m.? They just work four hours? And they, <laughs> well, they
2: do, but they work after their regular day job. Oh. They go 9 to 5, and then they go 5 to 9. And this was a, this was a, um, uh, a report that was done by PayPal, because PayPal manages all these transactions uh, throughout, uh, throughout the year. And they realized that there are 2.5 million Canadians that have generated revenues of approximately $2.5 billion on an annual basis. This is remarkable, and they've they've determined that because it, it's only a thousand dollar on average, a thousand dollars per person that they are doing this, that these businesses are created after your work hours because you can't necessarily make a fortune off of it if it's just a little hobby, but the amount of dollars that it's contributing to the economy is absolutely huge. And where it takes off from there because this is where your your hobbies, your your entrepreneurial hobby can turn into an actual business. So sometimes it's also a great platform for startups to get to, Figure out what's next. Coming
1: up next, we'll chat with our entrepreneur profile of the evening, Christina Budeva of WAF World Gifts, all about, uh, I guess, just handcrafted, um, interesting little pieces of art that are practical. So we'll talk to uh, WAF World Gifts coming up next. Inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and FL's Josh Miller with you. And this evening, we're chatting with Christina Budeva of WAF World Gifts. Welcome to CJD, Christina.
3: Hello, thank you for having me.
1: And thank you for the gifts. We appreciate that. Okay. Um, tell us about WAF.
3: Well, WAF um, is a company. We design educational activities for children. We also design and produce um, back to school items, stationery, right here back in Montreal in our own back- backyard.
2: When did did you start WAF?
3: Well, I started playing with the idea in 2011. Um, I came out with several products, and one specific product was very strong uh, that resonated with people that I took it on the market. And in 2012, we incorporated it. So it became a business in 2012.
2: Now this is something pretty new. I mean, the, the the feel of the notebooks and the and the product is is quite different. It's tactile. I know it's it's a little difficult to explain on air. Uh, I guess somebody can go to the website and take a look at it. But how did this come about? Like, where did the idea emanate?
3: Well, I I love design, and uh, we're all children at heart. And I strongly believe that. And um, the product itself, when I was thinking. When I created the original WAF products, it was all based on touch, feel, color, the stimulation, the basics. Because we all consume with electronic devices and everything uh, virtual and on air. And I wanted something physical that you could touch and enjoy right there instantly. And then the color stimulation. So I was able to put together in with the stationary angle to it and uh, launch a product and build a company around it
2: are you an inventor like did, did you did you do this yourself did you kind of hire somebody to say i have an idea now you go make it
3: well, um, I am an inventor, and that's what I do. I really enjoy product development um, and invention, so I, I come out with crazy ideas and crazy product ideas all the time. Um, the way you give birth to a product, in my particular case, I'm not trained designer or an inventor per se, so I look for the materials, I look for the pattern, I experiment, um, and then I look for sourcing, manufacturing, and I try to explain the concepts, send my prototypes, send my ideas, and then we start working on the markers back and forth. And that's how the product comes together in life.
1: There seems to be some educational research behind your concept too, right? I mean, kids tend to learn better sort of when they have something physical in their hands.
3: That's true. Um, there is an alphabet component to it. There is a tactile, small pieces component to it that you have to clip or cube or slide right on the product. There's a color stimulation, like I mentioned before. It's great with the children that has a spectrum of autism or autism per se, or uh, early childhood education, pre-K, kindergarten, grade one, introducing to that math component, alphabet component, even just coloring or doing some pixelated art emojis and things like that. So, yeah.
2: You, You said you've been developing like a lot of product. You had a lot of ideas over the years. Are there some that just didn't work that you that you learn and said you know what I better not go there again?
3: They do. You cannot fall in love with the product. You you give a birth to it. You take it to the market. If it doesn't sell, you kill it, and that's the harsh reality. You give it a time frame. I usually give I usually give it a year on the circuit, um, international circuit, and if sales don't lie, if it doesn't happen, you just shut it off and that's it
2: when you first started what was what was that biggest foul up product Uh, what was that biggest F up product that uh, that you know you could just never go back to or was it a material like I'm not sure
3: you know what there was a variety of combinations some products just didn't perform well there is particular one journal that I I came out, it was called Confetti, and my mother loved it, and people around me loved it. She still, to this day, my mother thinks that it was one of the best products, but it just didn't sell. It had a colorful component inside on the pages, outside, had some hardcover, some silk ribbons inside to uh, break the pages. The, the, the product didn't work and uh, we, the, didn't resonate with the customers, so uh, I had to kill it. And, uh, you know.
2: What is the material you work with the most?
3: Uh, at this point right now we work with few we work with a food grade silicone we work with recycled leather uh as well as paper uh different grade paper um we also have some cotton component um that we um include with our kits uh so yeah those are the key materials right now that i'm working with
2: do you have to train your suppliers to work properly with them you know that when you're sending them specifications it was, and it, did it take long to find the right suppliers, the right manufacturers? Uh,
3: learning curve. I mean, um, you have to know, as you know in your business, your numbers. You also have to know the product you are are making. So you have to know the chemical component. There is a testing certification, the market that you're playing in. So we educate and we constantly test um, our suppliers. We also test them in our own soil in the U.S. and in Canada for chemical components because sometimes some suppliers are not. Honest, especially, or they just don't know, or you know, that they, they tend to be uh, not upfront for it. So, we test the products all the time uh, to find out.
2: Did you go through a lot of suppliers at the beginning? Um,
3: and so the way that it goes, the process goes is let's say I come out with the idea, and um, then I start looking for how we can make it happen. And we came out with about maybe I would come out with about 10 to 12 different suppliers. So I would go to them, communicate what I need. I would send them my drawings, my product and materials. They would come back to me with the sample and the cost, what it's going to uh, cost me to produce the product. And from that evaluation, literally receiving the sample and evaluating the cost, going back and forth, I make my choice and I narrow it out to two or three and then we do with a small production run and I see how the financial aspect would go with two or three suppliers and pretty much uh, that elimination, trial uh, and errors.
2: Where are your suppliers located in the world?
3: Um, there are a few kind of some in the U.S., some in China right now at this present moment, yeah.
2: And which country do you prefer to deal with from your supplier aspect?
3: um you know i'm so used to asia so i've been there for quite some time um asian culture very close to me um so but i think it's all based on the relationship how you build them so i can't really say it's a u.s or china so asia i'm comfortable there it's it's home to me but i'm very blessed with my u.s suppliers as well so both of them is good
1: Coming up, more with Christina Budeva of WAF World Gifts. Also later in the show, we'll talk about, um, well, messing up and uh, that F-Up Night, which is coming up tomorrow night. And we'll tell you all about that with Natalie Revere of PFizio and how entrepreneurs can overcome uh, hard times. That's up next on Today's Entrepreneur.
0: Professional advice with a personal touch. Consult FL Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
1: Welcome back to Today's Entrepreneurs. Program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with FL Montreal's Josh Miller. And this evening, we're chatting with Christina Budeva of WAF World Gifts. In a little bit, we'll be joined by Natalie Riviere of P Visio and Jason Connell, who's the uh, founder of F Up Nights Canada. Big event coming up here and tomorrow. We'll talk all about that and about how entrepreneurs can be inspired by the uh, failures of uh, their predecessors. So that's on the way. Uh, But first, Christina, talking about WAF World Gifts and these these products that are really cool and fun to play with and tactile. Um, When you first started, did some adults look at you like, what is this? I mean, am I really gonna play with an agenda that's also a toy? And how did you overcome that sort of psychological barrier?
3: Well, the overcome was easy and natural. All you have to do is just put the product out there, put the little cubes and let the magic roll. We're all children at heart, so it it didn't took me of pitching or convincing. People just would stand and they would just play there. And then they would use any excuse to buy the product for themselves and just and the justification would be for oh for my nephew or for my son and they would just write to me back and say hey i'm missing letter a and for to spell my name or for that recipe and you know we we've been followed by a large audience of female audience very strongly for all the way from age 5 to 65 so this is our prime target audience so yeah so it works on adults magically as well
2: so once we're on that topic of marketing when you first came out with the product what was what how did you get the word out there I mean this is this is this is brand new six years ago how did you get to educate to show people that hey this is this is the next best thing
3: well, pr- first, when I came out with the idea and I had my first prototypes that I was testing them out, I did all the small local bazaars across Canada. So uh, first one was at the uh, basement of a church in San Dieter and uh, in the Christmas bazaar sale I would rent a table and that's how I learned my consumer behavior. But later, as we uh, started rolling as a business, um, we started participating in international trade shows around the world. So we started with the U.S. market primarily and uh, then slowly start adding some Europe, Asia and Latin America as well.
2: well. We we've asked a lot of entrepreneurs over the years do trade shows work for you? Does it is it really uh, give you that added benefit? Does it help you sell? And we've had really answers that have across the spectrum. Some say useless, some say yes, but one, you know, I got to go to that one. You're going to how many in a year, Christina?
3: Well, an average about 22.
2: So wow. 22, so Fair to say that you believe in trade shows. Why? Why? Why do you believe in it so much?
3: Because that's an opportunity platform for me to create that uh, very special relationship with my customers. That's where I bond. I hear the feedback. Uh, from my distributors, from my wholesalers um, that are telling me the response they're getting on the product, how the par- product reacting on the shelf, what the consumers think about it. So it's priceless. I would never get a time of a day to seeing my, for example, Walmart buyer or Toys R Us buyer. Well, now they're not doing yeah. so great, but anyway, <laughs> um, but they come to the show, and I have a relationship with them, and that's their mandate to come and see new vendors or vendors, and uh, that's it. It's uh, my relationship pl- platform.
2: So you you almost treat these trade shows or using part of it as a focus group to get all to get all that feedback. Now that you go to 22, how do you choose a 22? There's probably hundreds that you could that you could go to.
3: That's true. Well, we are focusing on three main industries right now, stationery, gift and toy. So all the trade shows are around that. Mine, uh, to be uh, honest, some of the um, trade shows are not uh, well attended. So we're looking at um, the key shows that are happening in specific market. For example, in the U.S., it would be Las Vegas, Atlanta, Dallas, New York, of course. And those and interna- are the hubs.
2: And internationally. And
3: internationally would be Hong Kong, Frankfurt, uh, Nuremberg, and uh, Mexico City, Guadalajara. Uh, so those are the key uh, prime prime shows that we do in those areas, in those hubs.
2: Now, what about other marketing? What about other either traditional or online marketing? What what's worked for you? What hasn't worked for you?
3: Word to mouth works for us. We try to do some marketing with um, within social media, but I have to tell you, it's uh, an art on its own and we, uh, you know, not very strong on that. And we went in traditional hiring agencies route. I think uh, right now we have to like eight agencies that we tried and not unsuccessfully. Unsuccessfully. We are not in in the size that we can see return our investment and we fall into that category of a cash cow being treated, you know? So for us it does not drive our online business, does not our key revenue generating source so that's why we're focusing on uh, trade shows where
2: so but you don't stay away from social media pages you you still you still use a facebook or or an instagram
3: absolutely we try to post regularly and we have very active uh uh, website that we as, as well we do uh so that generates directly to consumer sales
2: but now if you didn't have so many so much success with outside agencies you do a lot of it internally now
3: Um, what do you mean? Like internally, like
2: like your, your, your social media, your act, your activity and your social media or your website. Do you have internal people that deal with it and that post for you or you're, or you are outsourcing?
3: No, we're not outsourcing. We're doing in house right now. So I have a a team member that actually uh, handling that managing
2: closer closer to the product exactly closer to you on a daily basis on a daily basis she's actually four feet away from you exactly moment, right, right now I'm
3: smiling yes Naeli she's uh, fantastic so we love her
2: let's let's just uh, switch gears a little bit in, in our last moments before and and talk on the dollar side of it and the you know the cash flow the financing aspect of it when, as you're starting out and you're building your product and you're you're trying to get it off the ground you're you, you have to invest some dollars at the beginning what did you learn like did did you did you have to learn cash flow issues did you have to learn how to deal with customers and collections what was your experience then
3: oh my god that's like a subject for another like 10 10 yeah. hours to go um we'll
2: settle for two minutes
3: <laughs> wonderful so on you have to know your business. I'm cyclical, so the cash flow goes around that. So key seasonality for us, it's a back-to-school and holiday season. So a production tied up to this. And also, um, you have to watch, like a oh, hawks, your accounts receivable. Money coming in, money coming out. That's I do on a daily basis, like literally several times a day. I see what's floating, how's my inventory doing. It's almost becoming um, full-time. Task responsibility for do you, me.
2: Do you check your customers more today than you did at the beginning?
3: In terms of, In uh, terms of like, them? Cr- vetting them? Vetting C- yeah. cr- and- them. Small one, no, but on the larger scale, yes. On large retail uh, customers, we take accounts receivable insurance. Absolutely, absolutely. Because on the small mom and pops, if you have, let's say, 2,000 of them and one of them dies out, that $300 or $1,000 bad debt not going to kill you. But if, let's say, one of the large customers that buys from you, I don't know, over $100,000 goes bust, you'll feel that. That's going to hurt right into your bones. So, yes.
2: And what about uh, your suppliers? How are you deal? You know, do you you kind of did you stretch them at the beginning? You develop a relationship. How does your closeness of relationship affect, you know, your decision on cash outflow and payment?
3: You know what? With my suppliers, uh, first of all, it takes time to develop that trust. And once you get it, it's golden because then you could have your um, terms, you could stretch on specific uh, deals or projects that you're working on. You could work out the payment plans and things like that. They will back you up. And that's how you, you have to be, be able to choose your partners right. It's like almost in a marriage, you have to know who you're going into the war with, you know, so that those battle buddies. So it's that, that system will watch each other's back and honest transparency is the key. And, uh, it worked for me over but, the years.
2: And you definitely learn along the way from the few failures and the few mistakes Ooh, that painful. that happen each and every week, year, month.
3: <laughs> that's true. That's true.
2: Uh, coming up, we'll have Christina's one piece of advice for today's
1: entrepreneur, and we'll talk about F Up Nights, which is happening tomorrow night. How entrepreneurs are gonna get up on stage, tell their stories of failure, and how they persevered. So that is on the way with Natalie and Jason Connell, the founder of F Up Nights here in Canada. Welcome back. Inspiring stories from outstanding business people. Dan Delmar and FL Montreal's Josh Miller with you. We have Christina Budeva here of WAF World Gifts. So we'll have her one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur on the way. But first, let's uh, preview tomorrow night's big F-Up Night event with Natalie Riviere of p and Jason Connell, who is the international coordinator for F-Up Nights, the events around the world, and also founded the Canadian chapter of this, uh, this
2: franchise. Uh, Natalie, welcome back. And Jason, welcome to CJD.
4: Thank you. Thank
2: you so much. So, yeah, so we've been, this is our one year anniversary with Foul Up Nights uh, and, it, and it was uh, certainly the Montreal part. We started with four people, P-Vizio's one, Cometa, Natalie's uh, alter ego and other company that she works with. And then a couple other people, Creative Mornings, Louis-Felix Binette and Vanessa Mugler from Quovadis and Le Salon, 1861. And, uh, you know, there's so many events and we, we all hear entrepreneurs talk about their successes, but we all know they learn best from their failures. And this was an opportunity to get the Montreal community to talk more openly about their failures so that others can learn. And with that opening, uh, you certainly welcome Jason, welcome Natalie. Um, Nat, you know, you, you, you of the four, you started it with us. So I guess, where did you, where did you, where do you see the best fix or the, or, or the where, where it really resonates with the entrepreneur?
4: For me in Montreal, it was an opportunity to bridge communities because we're bilingual here. Um, I was attracted to this event not only because it was refreshing and telling the human side of the story in business, not just the glamour and excitement and hustle and uh, all the, you know, glorious things that people can make entrepreneurship out to be, Um I was attracted to the idea that it would bring a bit of transparency and fresh new conversations some connectedness to our community, but also in Montreal, particularly because I'd been involved in entrepreneurship for a long time in different pockets, French, English, also from schools and educational institutions to corporate and things happening privately, startups. I saw this as an opportunity to bring everyone together, and I think that is refreshing for the entrepreneurs here alone. Just the idea of community and connectedness.
2: No question, Jason. You know, you you've been part of this organization a while, but there's also what's called the Failure Institute that does research out there that that really takes information, uh, uh, questions entrepreneurs. What kind of stats have you have you seen out there, and what can you share with our listeners?
5: Yeah, definitely. So um, the failure institute kind of started. Um, we had all these. This, uh, I guess qualitative data, uh, from these talks, um, but we weren't doing anything with it. And so really the failure Institute was formed to kind of take that data from the talks that we have every month and, and to kind of bring in researchers to help, uh, you know, fix policy, um, and, you know, bis- help businesses make smarter decisions. So, um, a lot of their research is, is focused on failure and why do entrepreneurs fail and what happens to entrepreneurs after they fail and all these kind of, um, these kind of data data points. So,
2: so why do they fail?
5: Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, a lot of the entrepreneurs, the vast majority, it's financial. It's they didn't get enough funding. They couldn't close sales. They couldn't um, have the financial resources backing them to carry on the business. Um, and then the second below that is we find that it's usually bad founders. So, bad founder matchups, I should say. So, you know, two people who are friends or two people who don't even know each other sometimes get together and build a business. Uh, and then realize that they really can't stand the other person or they don't have the same vision for the business. Um, so we find that that's a, a big a big uh, source of failure as well.
2: Now what about coping with it? What about coming out of that failure and, and so what, what does the research say or maybe some of the better mechanisms or or, or- what entrepreneurs are doing to get out of it.
5: Totally. Yeah. So um, we kind of see three pathways um, for founders who, you know, their business tanks. The first and um, in, in no particular order, um, the first is they go back for more education. So um, they go back to school or they kind of work for another company. They kind of absorb more knowledge to say, OK, you know, I didn't know this, this, and this. Well, let's learn this and this and this before I start something new. Um, The second pathway we see uh, is they kind of take a sabbatical. They have to lick their wounds. They have to kind of um, get over that failure and kind of come to terms with what happened before they jump into entrepreneurship again. Uh, And then the final pathway uh, is for those people who just can't get enough. Uh, They jump straight into another business. And so we kind of see... uh, you know, different geographic areas react differently. So, North America, a lot of companies, they lick their wounds before going back, whereas in Europe, they get more education before going back into a company.
2: So, so. Depending where you are in the world, I guess there's also those culture differences.
5: Totally, yeah, um, we see them every day, um, and just through the event itself. You know, some of our more successful events are in places where that kind of culture around failure or, you know, personal failure is is kind of uh, very sensitive. Like Christ-
2: Tokyo, Cr- Christina, how would you classify? How do, how do you, when you hit a, a snag, you have a failure, do you just plow right through it? How do you react to that?
3: Well, I assess the situation, what happened. I allow myself. Every year, there is a project that we fail. And I allow myself that so I don't beat myself. So it's a natural process to success. There's nothing wrong about it. So I assess what went wrong. And I try to learn from it how we can make it better next time. And if I cannot make it, then I abandon and try another way. That's the way I do it, you know?
2: We we can talk about failure and the failure index and all that for, for a really long time, but as we approach the last moment of the show as we do each week, we'll turn to Christina Budayeva of WAF World Gifts and ask you, Christina, what would be your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur?
3: Well, since it's around failure, I would say, guys, fail quickly and try to do it gracefully. Innovate yourself also. Innovation is huge. You are good as your last year idea or last month's idea. So, that new fresh angle you constantly have to innovate and the last thing is the cash is the king so no cash no business sales don't lie so that's my advice <laughs> pretty much
2: <laughs> excellent thanks very much christina uh some great takeaways but certainly tomorrow night find the fun uh foul, foul up nights go to go to our facebook page facebook Fun Montreal, and uh, and hopefully you can join us and hear some other great stories tomorrow night. Taking place at
1: uh, Col des Entrepreneurs on en de Levesque, So again, Facebook.com/slash Fun Montreal for more info on that. Thanks to uh, Jason Connell for stopping by, and Natalie Riviera as usual as p- at Visio. vizio uh, Christina Budeva of WAF World Gifts. Thanks so much for uh, for your profile this evening, Christina.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
1: And Josh, we'll be back next week with uh, the uh, increasingly popular
2: Copper Branch. Copper Branch, what a what a great flavor, and maybe we'll get to taste some. I hope so. See you next Monday night.